So, Ayush, on our last video, one of the, one of the most commented about moments uh, was the constant buzzing of your cell phone, which I thought really fit the theme of our, you know, t technology topic. So I just, like, can you take us through your artistic thought process on that? I forgot to turn off my notifications and they were all just from one group me, which there's like 500 people in. And it just, it was just like a whole mess. And I realized in the middle of the podcast that like, hey, it's buzzing. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? Let it just be there. We're, we're not editing. We're not redoing anything. It, it works. <laughs> it works. Okay, good. Good on the fly adaptation. Um, <laughs> anyway. With, yeah. Now that we've uh, gotten that piece of feedback out of the way, it's time for episode two of In Case You Missed It, uh, and this is the European Union edition. Yeah. So right now in Europe, we see like a lot of conflict. We see alt-right movements, we see Brexit, and then we also see like the coronavirus handling and just the struggle that's happening there. And to really understand why the European Union is sort of failing right now, we kind of have to look to the history of why it was established and then realize, hey, what we can take away from its history. So after World War II, Winston Churchill called for the creation of the United States of Europe to save it from like an economic collapse and to save all of these nations from basically just like having no economy and having no government. So Winston Churchill and President Truman at that time were really, really like good friends. So Winston Churchill kind of imagined the same thing for Europe as he saw in the United States. And kind of based off of that, he suggested the United States of Europe. And while that wasn't adopted at that time, France and Germany started the Schuman Agreement. And that was the first big step towards having a unified Europe. And what France and Germany agreed to within the Schuman Declaration was basically intertwining their coal and steel industries to the point that a war would be unthinkable. So there would be no economically viable way to engage in conflicts with each other. And overall, like the reason it was so important in the mission of, you know, creating a more unified Europe to start with those two countries and those two industries is because obviously coal and steel are so important in making weapons and out fitting a military and supply lines. Uh, and then in World War II, obviously France was, uh, and uh, Germany, I mean, Nazi Germany was the aggressor. But if, even if you go back to World War I, uh, you can see that th that border region where their France and coal mines were was both militarily and you know, culturally a, really, a flashpoint. So it's a good place to start to de-escalate conflicts. But it wouldn't be enough, of course, just to have those two. Uh, which is why they then expanded it to make the European coal and steel community, which in addition to the France and Germany included Italy, Netherlands, Belgium, and uh, Luxembourg. I always forget Luxembourg. Um, <laughs> and then those six countries uh, took it a step uh, farther by creating the Treaty of Rome, which uh, made the European economic community. So it wasn't just, you know, steel and coal anymore. It was pretty much all trade goods could uh, be, you know, moved across borders freely which was a big step forward. So yeah, during this time, while like the European economic community was being established, the UK tried to join this community, but was blocked by France on like two separate occasions until 1973 when they were finally let in. Why, why was France blocking the UK? Well, 
France said that the UK was too close to the US, which they didn't really explain, but there might just be some other reason, such as lingering animosity from previous wars or just previous engagements. But anyway, eventually the Schengen Agreement was signed in the 1980s, which created the modern form of the European Union as we say it today, where there's like no borders and there's free movement between nations. And during that same time, Spain and Portugal ended up also joining the European Union. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy to me that like Spain and Portugal were both under, you know, like semi-fascist dictatorships until the 70s. Uh, you know, they, they weren't quite, they're, they aren't quite considered fascist, but they were very still oppressive and authoritarian. Um, and they, they were allowed to join NATO because NATO didn't care about democracy or human rights. It's if you're anti-communism, you're good. But, you know, European unif projects wouldn't let them in until both, you know, around the same time, they got rid of their dictatorships and then, you know, turned towards democracy and could be let in. Yeah, Which, it's really crazy that it happened so late. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good thing that it finally happened, though. Uh, yeah, democracy yeah. is the right decision. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And then in the early 90s, the Maastricht Agreement was signed. It was a treaty between all these European nations, which basically set in stone the modern day European Union and started the idea of the Euro. Yeah. Uh, and so that it actually took like 10 years to get the Euro from we've all agreed to it to actually a trading currency. Because it's, it's a really big deal. And it's kind of impressive that they pulled that off. I think like regardless of if you think it's good or not, that's a pretty cool thing to happen to have like 16 countries or whatever switch currencies yeah and i'm not gonna deny it but like the european union ended up spending a few years just trying to decide the name of the currency. <laughs> yeah <laughs> though i i think it's a pretty good one and i think the currency looks pretty cool i, yeah. I like the currency um but anyway more recently the eu has been rocked by four big crises in the last 12 years so first you have the you know financial crisis of 2008 uh you know which caused the great recession here uh, and then they have the debt crisis, which is kind of like the financial crisis part two, which is when, you know, countries like Greece and Italy started being at risk of defaulting on their debt, uh, and uh, Portugal as well. And then there's the migrant crisis of immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa really overwhelming their borders. Uh, and then, you know, finally, most recently, there's the coronavirus crisis. And throughout all these, there have been some people in Europe being like, hey, we need to work together more. We need to share resources more. Uh, yeah. But then there's others who, who's been, who have been like, no, this proves, you know, this isn't working. You're bringing us down. You're not contributing your fair share. Um, and so, you know, I think it's pretty important to figure out why we're seeing these divergent responses, why some people think we need more unity and some less, and also to try to figure out, you know, where is the EU going? What, where are they going from here? Yeah, so more looking at the modern day stuff. So within all of these crises, it has also stemmed a lot of other things that are happening across Europe. The main one is just this far-right sentiment that's sweeping across Europe, and it's mainly started in Poland and Hungary. In Poland in particular, after their president was elected to be the president of the European Union, they had to have elections again. And during those elections, a far-right leader was elected into power and he basically ingrained anti-democratic like institutions within their government and convinced everyone that like, hey, being anti-democratic is actually a really, really good thing for the future of Poland. 
and to see where they're going, you can just look back to Hungary, which, you know, Viktor Orban, uh, you know, narrowly won electoral victory. And then he started changing the constitution and gerrymandering uh, to some degree. And now, even though he's, his party has, like, lost support, he's gained power in the government because of, he's pretty much perverted it. Yeah, yeah. In the last election, I believe his, like, party got, like, 40% of the votes, but they actually increased their power. In yeah, I think. Which made no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So then also with this far right sentiment and something that Donovan mentioned earlier about like, hey, why are you dragging us down when like looking at the really powerful European nations? It's this idea of like Brexit. And while I agree Brexit was there for a reason, it was only possible through the migrant crisis and all these different crises that finally allowed Boris Johnson to convince the people that we're being dragged down by the rest of Europe and we need to leave. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there are complexities to how European integration has helped some people and hurt others within national economies. But I, I think overall, it has been beneficial for the UK. I think most economists would argue that. Yeah. Uh, but so without that far right sentiment and like fear of, you know, migrants taking your jobs and stuff, I, I don't think Boris Johnson would have been able to advocate that position so effectively and get it get them to actually go through with Brexit. Yeah, once again, most of these crises like ended up creating this far right sentiment or just like, hey, we don't want to be part of this community. We want to be on our own. Because yeah. like some nations, especially the smaller ones that are in the European Union, get a lot more affected by these crises. And just overall, it's just like we don't want to be part of this organization overall. Yeah, but the, the interesting thing is that well, you know, some of these countries are leaving uh, both you know, a big one like the UK, but also, you know, those far right ones, they're not leaving the EU, but they're basically telling the EU to screw off and leave us alone. Uh, but while that's happening, other countries are trying to join, you know, North Macedonia changed its name to try to get more likely to be let in. Uh, the, the name changes a whole other story, which is kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, like Scotland is, you know, part of the UK, but they want to try to get back into the EU, which is, Kind of interesting to see you know they they're not happy that the uk took them out mm -hmm. um so I, I think you know you have these two directions really pulling the eu in either direction and i think looking at how they respond to coronavirus will be key you know in which direction is the european union actually going yeah because at one hand at the end of the day it, there's always going to be nations in europe saying that we want to leave the european union but there's always nations that are willing to take their spots so while the uk has left macedonia kosovo scotland are all uh, trying north to macedonia uh, don't, north. don't offend anyone <laughs> all right well i think that wraps up our segment today yeah any final thoughts any final concerns um you know, I am in favor of European increased integration, so I really hope they take a strong response uh, to sharing, you know, the burden of dealing with coronavirus, because I think that's such a good precedent for the continuation of European Union and, you know, really peace on the European continent. All right. Well, Donovan, it was a good episode. And thank you for all of our viewers for tuning into our second episode of In Case You Missed It. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.